as you have all been practicing now for quite some time, both in the context of this retreat for quite some time and so for most of you in the context of your lives for quite some time, engaging in Dharma practice, what I felt might be uh, useful to just reflect upon and offer some reflections with regard to is the what we could call the uh, the fruition of Dharma practice, the fruit of this mode of engagement. That uh, as you sit and walk and stand and engage in the cultivation of mindfulness, of curiosity, of loving kindness, of concentration, samatha. Understanding this within a context of of serving, of supporting, of contributing to the deepening of the well-being of oneself and the well-being of others. This is essentially what we're here for. And in this particular mode of practice we call insight meditation, with, of course, the inclusion in that sort of framework from my perspective of uh, the cultivation of metta, the cultivation of samatha, that all of these, together with the more specific engagement in vipassana, these all come together toward the development of the heart and mind, the deepening of, of wisdom and compassion. And this coming to understand, coming to open to the truth of life, gives rise to or enables us to enter into our life in the spirit and in the understanding, the realization even, we could say, of freedom and of compassion. And these, these two particular qualities are the, the fruition of Dharma practice, the fruition of awakening, freedom and compassion. So I'd like to use as a framework for speaking about these the uh, <coughs> rather remarkable words of a uh, much-loved Tibetan teacher, who's now dead quite a few years, Kalu Rinpoche, but his words live on for many who appreciate his teachings. And uh, he once said, You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And sometimes I'm just kind of tempted to stop there. Because really, to contemplate that would be sufficient. But uh, in order to perhaps uh, share with you my own contemplations on that theme, I won't stop. Perhaps you suspect it as much. You live, or we live, in illusion and the appearance of things. This is so much the topic of our exploration to look and see what is true, 
to what degree are we confused or misconfused by or misconstruing misunderstanding our experience and the key element or area in which we're directed towards this reflection in terms of dharma practices to do with the appearance of self the way in which we feel perceive imagine understand or even we think experience ourself to be something separate distant different disconnected removed apart from discreet in relationship to everything else which is other over there and somehow distant from us or apart from us this perception in which we are located in a specific place body time mind state and everything else is somehow located elsewhere this perception or this way of seeing the world is the basis of a profound sense of isolation of disconnection and a deep and very very painful suffering or discontent this sense of separation is at the heart of the discontent that moves us to engage in spiritual practice to seek to understand more deeply more truly and we see that this sense of self the sense of being someone defined and limited in time and space defined by this body or this mind or this story of our history whatever it might be that this when we define ourselves in this way we see that we are bound by the realm of birth and death when we identify with any experience or anything of this body this mind this thing we call life when we identify with this we take birth and as all things that arise must pass all things that we can identify with come into being according to conditions and pass away according to other conditions then inevitably when these things pass away having taken birth in them we are subject to death and it's a little bit like we're a wave on the ocean just imagine that image it's sometimes used to describe a human life like a wave on the ocean but just imagine right now rather than an image we actually were a wave on the ocean and imagine what it would be like as you were sort of just heading along maybe it's kind of an interesting journey but of wind and you know a few fish turning up now and then occasional seagull then at some point in the distance you spot the sh- shoreline you don't really know what that's about but there's something going on over there that's a bit different then you keep going that direction you're getting a little closer and you start to notice that the waves in front of you are breaking on the shore and apparently being just destroyed and it sort of gives rise to some concern rather naturally it would say oh my gosh i don't want to do that and then you realize that actually this wave only goes in one direction you can't reverse you can't head away from the shore you are inexorably heading in that direction 
And of course, you could imagine there might be a lot of fear, a lot of concern, a lot of struggle to avoid, to sort of somehow go left or go right or slow down, to no avail. And so, of course, as a wave, one crashes upon the shore at some point. And one might, looking at the situation, see the wave disintegrate, disappear, cease to exist in the form that it did. And certainly that's true. The wave is destroyed. But what if the water? What happens to the water when the wave hits the shore? Is the water harmed, diminished, even affected, would you really say, by this process? No, not really. Not in any significant way. As far as the water is concerned, it's still going to be water at the end of all that. And in this we could perhaps see that although we tend to identify with the particular form and shape in which we have turned up, this human birth we call it, so long as we're identified with the particularities of that, we are bound by birth and by death, inescapably. But so long as we, or so insofar as we begin to sense to understand, to recognize the deeper nature of this being human, what that is. Just as the water is unaffected when the wave crashes upon the shore, so too the deeper nature of life, of which human beings are a manifestation, this is not affected by the arising and passing. This is not this does not come to an end by the ending of one particular form. And so we kind of look a bit more carefully at this experience, this very compelling and convincing experience that suggests to me that I am this and only this that I identify with body, mind, thoughts, feelings, whatever else we might images, stories, history, our various descriptions of our characteristics and qualities, our successes and our failures, our hopes for the future, all of that that we might call ourself, the way in which we're embedded in roles and relationships that involve engaging in certain ways or with certain people, all of this that we identify with, we begin to look at, we begin to explore consciously. And if we start to look at it very carefully, what we'll see is that what is actually happening is sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, thoughts. That's it. The five sense, physical senses and the mind registering thought. This is the entirety of our existence and our experience. There isn't something else that we can consciously recognize And all these things, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thoughts, we see as we watch them, they're somewhat ephemeral. They're coming and going, they're changing. The more closely and carefully we look at them, the more clearly and directly we recognize that truth, that it's all just coming into being and dissolving. And this is, it seems, the totality of experience. And I think it's... 
Interesting. I was fascinated to discover many, many years ago when I was doing a paper in psychology um, that uh, scientists had studied the nature of our sensory equipment and discovered that they could only register experience that's changing. It's not just that all our experience is changing, but we're actually equipped to sense and register that and nothing else. And the, the way they do this, you, you may be familiar with the phenomena whereby perhaps there's a sound and you're aware of it when it first begins, but if it's continuous and not too loud, often it just disappears after some time. And there'll often be the sense of not, and the classic one is when the fridge switches itself off and you suddenly, ah, you realise that all along you heard the sound of it and maybe it was a little bit sort of irritating or stressing in some mild way, but we weren't conscious of it at all. It's like we tune it out. Or a smell arises and we smell it and maybe it's sweet or maybe it's unpleasant, but if it stays constant, pretty soon we stop smelling it. I imagine you're all familiar with this. Equally with um, something, we taste something, food. You put a nice flavour in your mouth, after a while one stops tasting it, unless you swallow, sort of clean your mouth out and start again. And so scientists were wondering, is this the case for all of our equipment, all of our sensory experience? Because the one particular one that it doesn't seem to apply to is the eyes. For the most part, when we're healthy, we don't observe that if we look at the same thing, it disappears after a while. It's not happened... To, to me ever and maybe not to yourself um, but they realised that the eyeball is sitting inside its socket shimmering like this left to right very very quickly so the image that's being projected onto the retina the sensory receptors is constantly changing those receptors aren't getting stimulated in the same way constantly it's constantly changing and so they thought well let's check this out and see what happens so they they mounted a, a tiny little projector on a contact lens pointing into the eyeball. Tiny little thing. So it would be moving with the eye. And therefore, the image inside the eye would stay constant. What subjects with these co this contact lens on reported when I closed and having this come in, they'd see this image projected into their eye for a little while and then it all would go blank. <coughs> it's like they would stop perceiving it if it stopped changing. And at the time, I thought this was fascinating, but subsequently, in the context of Dharma practice and Dharma teachings, you know, sometime later, reflecting on this seems very interesting that our sense equipment is only able to register things that are changing. We can't directly, with our mouth, our tongue, sorry, our nose, our ears, our eyes, our body, or equally, in fact, our intellectual mind. We cannot register something that isn't changing. Our equipment doesn't work that way. And so, although all of this changing experience is revealed, that we are mindful of, we're sensitive to, we learn to be with in our experience, that is not the same as concluding that that's all that is revealed. It's all that our sensory equipment can register. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality 
you are that reality. What does that mean? When we see the changing nature of experience, the natural implication or the effect of seeing that very clearly is to start to become less invested in it, to start to see that it doesn't give any basis for satisfaction in a lasting way because it's changing. It doesn't give any basis for self-identity because it's not constant, it's not reliable. And so in becoming less fixated upon it, less projecting onto experience that it can do it for me or it's going to sort of establish my sense of solidity or certainty or a clear central reference point around which I can orient my life, reference point called me. It doesn't provide that. As we start to see that, we become less fixated by it. It starts to occupy less of consciousness. It's not the totality of our focus anymore. Although it might still be very clearly and needs to be the ground for our establishing of attentiveness because that's all there is to attend to. And yet, when we're not so fixated on it, when we're not projecting onto it the possibility of a kind of satisfaction it doesn't have within it to offer us, when we're not projecting that onto it, we can start to sense or notice something else. We can start to recognize, not with our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, our body, or our thinking mind. We can't do it with that. But nonetheless, we can start to recognize something that we could say is the basis of all of this happening in the first place, is the foundation, is the ground, is the very nature of it all. And in and through which the experiences, the moving, changing, flowing life is revealed, is manifest. And yet this is something that we, by its very naturalness and ordinariness and obviousness, easily miss, easily fail to recognize this, which is not actually something, but nor is it nothing. And it's a bit like, it's a bit like when we uh, look at things, we're, we're so carefully, or deeply habituated and even carefully trained to focus on the particular, the thing that stands out in the foreground. And there's, you know, the biological need to notice things that are going to be threatening to us or that potentially are food for us or mates for us. So we, starting from that need to particularize things, we do that. We tend to notice what stands out and takes our interest. So we look up at the night sky and we see the stars. We see these bright points of light or perhaps the moon or some constellation. We form an image. Oh, it looks like a big dipper or the great bear or in New Zealand it would be Scorpio rising, this magnificent sort of incredible constellation that you don't get to see in the Northern Hemisphere. And, uh, and it's like, wow, look at that. Amazing. You know, sort of these, the Scorpios, these, you know, very clearly defined the two pinches, the tail curving around and all of this. Um, and yet, you know, because we look in that way, we don't tend to notice 
the backdrop so much. We don't notice the vast inky blackness of this night sky in which all those little pinprick dots are shining. Uh, I mean, we notice it. We don't, it's not like we don't see it at all, but there's something about it that we don't quite see unless we're really looking. Because we tend to focus on the foreground, on what stands out. We kind of bring it forward in a sense of dimensionality, three-dimensionality. So another way in which we're probably quite familiar with this foreground, background phenomena is in watching a movie, which I'm sure you've all done, and not just the ones that play through the mind on retreat, um, although they're quite similar, but watching a movie. Have you ever kind of just reflected on what's happening? when we watch a movie. I quite enjoy watching movies. You sit down, and then some colours appear in front of you, and some vibrations in the air resonate in your ear. And between the two of them, a story appears, in which there's beings who you care for, and you know maybe the good beings, and the, there's some other beings who you're a bit concerned about, and they look a bit dubious, and they're probably the bad beings. And, you know, one sees this colour play unfolding in front of you and we get quite involved in it in fact because you know some of the those nice patches of good colors are obviously being threatened by the bad colors and sometimes the bad colors appear suddenly from nowhere and we want to say watch out but it's a bunch of colors moving around on a screen and yet we don't see the screen we see the colors we see what stands out forward but we can only see those colors because there's a white screen on which they're projected and the moment we notice the screen if like they project it in such a way that you can't see the screen if you could see the screen like if you left a white band all around the movie with a sign on it saying this is the screen it would totally spoil the experience because you'd keep getting reminded that those are just a bunch of colors not actually a real life thing happening and although we can't see the screen on the movie because it's covered with these lights these moving colors we could not and would not be able to see those colours unless the screen was there to reflect them. That's the nature of how a movie works. I mean, I know you all know this, but it's like what the implication of that is. Experience is what we're in contact with through our sensory equipment, the sense bases, as we call them in the Dharma. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts. But how is it that they come to be revealed? What, we could say, is the screen on which they are projected or through which they are reflected, by which they are revealed? What would that be? How would that be? We can't see the background because it's not something of that order that can be seen or smelt or tasted or touched or heard or conceived. Our sensory equipment doesn't go there. Can't go there. Doesn't actually need to go there. Because when we start to recognize that, when we're not so invested and engaged and lost in the world of things, quite naturally... There's a, another whole mode of sensing, of recognizing, of knowing, of engaging or receiving or, or some 
thing that's that's very particular and yet very ordinary as well. There's just a certain knowing, a certain recognizing, a certain, we could say, revelation of life, a realization of life, in life, of life, with life, not apart from life, but that is not by the senses, not by the mind, where we feel the resonance or intuitively recognize the presence of the the unifying principle, we could say, or the underlying truth, or the fundamental reality, or the, the nature of things. The nature of things, we could say. Without attributing any characteristic to that, without attributing any particularity to that, because none could stick, none could hold with it. And yet there's the sense of just the recognition, without being able to say, or finger point to what is recognized. There's just the recognition itself. And we could say that the heart of our being that kind of somehow resonates in this, that isn't one of the senses and yet isn't apart from the senses. There's a certain recognizing, a resonating. And what is recognized or what the resonance is with is something that's fresh, it's new, it's original. It's not recognized as old or as from before, but as fresh and yet not newly arising, but actually something about it being steady. Our perception, our recognition, our discovery, our opening to it may have, and will inevitably, if it's genuine, have that freshness always, because it's not something we can register in our memory and refer back to the way we can with a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch or a thought. We can't register in memory. The effect on heart, mind and body, on thoughts and feelings, that can register. There may be a sense of release or relief or openness or just uplift or delight or curiosity or mystery or love, compassion, connection. All these things we can register, but they are not that. And yet they are not apart from the touch of that. There's something about the freshness and the immediacy that it's like familiar and yet new. Familiar and yet new. And that's the mark of deep truth. It's familiar because it's already known to us. And yet it's new because it can't be anything other than new. There's the only way it can be seen or met or recognized is from that place of freshness. And in this, there's, there's an immediacy, there's a simple awareness, the recognizing of life unfolding. It's remarkable, it's inexplicable. And yet it's revealed. It's here, it's happening. It's clearly evident that this is going on. And yet... There's nothing you can really put your finger on to say this is what's going on. Apart from the sights, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts. And yet something in us knows that's not all there is to it because although that's all that is to it in one sense, in another sense, no. That is pointing to or revealing or being revealed by something else. And it's 
quite a significant thing to recognize and to be able to see, oh, there's nothing there apart from the sensory experience. And yet there's not nothing there apart from the sensory experience. Shabka, who lived in the uh, 18th and 19th century, uh, was a great Tibetan teacher. He wrote of this, and this is a translation from The Flight of the Garuda. He said, Now come up close and listen. When you look carefully, you won't find the merest speck of real mind you can put your finger on and say, this is it. He's using the word real, he's using the word mind, or real mind, to point to this territory. So not the, the mind of appearances and experiences. You won't find the merest speck of real mind you can put your finger on and say, this is it. And not finding anything is an incredible find. Friends, to start with, mind doesn't emerge from anything. It's primordially, primordially empty. There's nothing there to hold on to. It isn't anywhere. It has no shape or colour, and in the end, nowhere to go. There's no trace of its having been. Bye. Its movements are empty, but that emptiness is apparent. In the beginning, mind itself is not created by causes and finally not destroyed by external conditions. It neither grows nor gets stuck. It's not empty or full, infusing peace and anguish alike. It shows no preference. Ceaselessly, it reveals itself as everything, so you can't say, here it is. Not being fixed as something, it's beyond presence and absence. It neither comes nor goes, gets born nor dies, illuminates nor obscures. Mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. All that, and there's nothing there. So this life, this existence, and equally this retreat or your practice, is a journey, we say, a journey of awakening. Not a journey to some distant place or other realm, not a journey to becoming something other than what you are already, but a journey of discovery, a journey of return, a journey of reawakening our consciousness to its very own nature. To discover the very, we could say, origin, centre and source of existence, which is nothing other than existence itself, not located or specific, and yet nonetheless there. T.S. Eliot writes in The Four Quartets, one of my favourite poetry stanzas, he writes, We shall not cease from exploration and the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time. A condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well.
so remarkable as it is to discover the very nature of being. You could say the nature of the awakened mind. Remarkable as it is to discover this. Even more remarkable is to discover that in fact we were never apart from it. We have never and could never leave our nature any more than a wave could leave the ocean or a water could cease to be water. A wave could cease to be water. How remarkable to discover this, that we are. And this discovery is both shocking and yet profoundly just, ah, of course. <laughs> like, oh yeah. A number of years ago I was, uh, I was washing the dishes at home after dinner when the phone rang. So I went to uh, pick up the phone and uh, speaking to a friend on the phone and as I was doing it I was uh, just putting my fingers where and just as I sometimes was in the habit of at the time not being that long married uh, sort of fidgeting with my uh, wedding ring and uh, this kind of strange thing that's appeared on my finger and I was just reaching to do that and as I put my fingers down there and started to begin to play with the ring I thought I realised it wasn't there so I just covered the mouthpiece on the phone and quickly said to Catherine, I said, Catherine, uh, don't tip the dishwater dish out. Um, and I just finished off the conversation and went to look for my ring. We carefully went through all the uh, dishwater. It wasn't there. And I was feeling this place on my finger where it had been in this sort of soft, shiny spot that had already begun to wear the skin down. It was a bit softer and stickier. And it was like, where, what have I done with it? Oh, gosh, I haven't lost it. We, you know, it's like this is... You know, this is really worrying and tragic and I was all, all this concern going on. And we were, you know, Catherine, could you help me look for my ring? And we were looking through the house and around. And then at some point we were looking everywhere I'd been and trying racking my mind, where, what have I done? How could this have come off? Um, she looked at me and I was in this place of just holding the ring spot and feeling it and feeling the loss of it. And she said, she looked at me and she said, it's the other hand. And somehow I was, it's gone, it's gone. I'm a little bit dyslexic. <laughs> but there was this moment of, <coughs> oh, wow. And then, huh? And then again, wow. I, I thought I'd lost it, but it was never lost. I thought I'd lost it, but it was always there. I just was in my con being convinced that I'd lost it, I was looking so hard elsewhere and examining the place where I th thought it was gone from, whereby obscuring. I mean, the metaphor is direct and precise. Obscuring, I can't see the ring on this hand because I'm so busy going, ah, oh, I've lost it. I can't see it. I don't know if you can see how that is without me turning it around, but it, it disappears. And the moment I stop thinking it's gone, it's right in front of my face. 
In Dharma practice, this discovery is born of the end of seeking and is the basis of the end of seeking. When through wisdom we stop trying to take hold of things to define ourselves, we stop giving them that authority, then what naturally starts to shine through is the deeper truth, the deeper nature of life. And the whole energy and momentum of pursuing, of seeking, of journeying, of feeling somehow that that which we seek is apart from us and has to be gained by some effort or journey or departure from where we are. That whole energy and momentum just collapses in on itself because there is nowhere to go. In the moment of seeing the wedding ring, I did not think, oh, I should just finish off looking in that last corner I haven't checked. The whole question of looking for it is gone. The whole sense of anguish as its loss is gone. There's a a vague, wry amusement that, gosh, would you look at what I just went through, put myself through. And it's the grasping and holding and trying to take attachment to experience that creates the appearance of the loss or the obscuration or the distance or the disconnection or the separation. But it's only ever the appearance of that. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you realize this, you will see that you are nothing. No thing. To realize that you are no thing. And this really is only possible when we recognize. To release our tendency of identifying with things and saying, I am this thing or I'm not that thing, which is just a reverse form of identification that still identifies you, but by defining yourself as not this rather than am this. And it's just worth noting in terms of Dharma practice that the Buddha said to not take things as self. He didn't say to make things into not self or make things into this is, I am not this, except as a contraposition to the idea I am this. Because actually the whole habit of making a position, either I am or I am not, still creates a positionality, a locatedness, and around that sense of location, whether defined by I am or defined by I am not, that locatedness and that sense of containment within it is actually the issue, not the mode of defining, not the way we define ourselves. To see that we are no thing, no particularity, defines us. This we only really can truly see when we see equally and deeply the unchanging nature, the truth of experience and life. And when we're in contact with that, the urge, the incredibly powerful and painful urge to grasp or to reject, to push away, to take hold of, to manipulate, that kind of softens, eases and drops away. There's really no need to seek in that manner anymore. Although one, of course, may need to pursue and attend to the things of this world and life appropriately to take care of 
that which one cares for. But to not take anything as what you are, this is the basis of freedom. To truly and deeply recognize unshakably that no particularity, no thing, no experience, no condition, no thought, no circumstance defines you. You are not absolutely anything, but neither, of course, are you absolutely not any of those things. The need to define oneself has to go. And it's Departure, dissolution or ending is the mark of freedom. To be undefined is to be unbound. To be unbound is to be unbounded. And this is the possibility of Dharma practice, of awakening to freedom. To be unbound from things which are born and die. And yet not apart from not distant or disconnected from in any way. When you realize this, you will see that you are nothing, no thing. And being nothing, you are everything. You are everything. When we don't make ourselves into a particularity, when we're not defining ourselves by saying I'm not this or I am that, when there isn't that defining, locating and solidifying process going on that is basically the underlying core movement within the sense of self and the solidity and the separation and the suffering that is born of that solidity and separation, when that's not going on or when we start to see through the untruth and the ineffectiveness and the, the painfulness of that locating, solidifying, centralizing tendency. When we start to see through that, quite naturally and obviously and organically, we recognize that we are part of all things, that the very nature of things is indivisible, that the underlying truth and vibration or resonance or whatever word we could try and apply to it, because of course none of those words can quite go there. So it's fine to apply a few words to it in the hope of getting some sense, but knowing that the word isn't the point here. But there is something that we recognize in terms of this underlying nature of things that we are part of, that we're not separate from, that is recognized not by our sensory equipment or our mind, but by that truth itself. And so far as we are attuned to it, it is self-recognizing within us. And to be part of life, to be part of life, undivided, indivisibly, unstoppably part of life, is to experience the world of things, of coming and going, of birth and death and everything else, in a profoundly different way. To see the vastness of life, the vastness of existence, when we realize we're part of this world, this vast and wonderful, amazing, intricate, precious and 
vulnerable planet, this immense cosmos when we look into the sky and the night sky it just goes on and on and on beyond conception beyond measurement beyond even the remarkable minds and instruments of modern western science there isn't any point they come to and say yeah we found it that's where it began or where it ends that vastness there's something about being part of that that's incredibly nourishing and reassuring just like if we can relax into that. And there's something about the connection that's born in that, the heldness, not the tight holding of grasping, but the heldness that's sort of, for me, symbolised by like the open hands or like cradling something, like a child or a baby, obviously, the obvious example, but that sense of heldness, of non-isolation, of non-separation, of non-apartness, that we recognize something of as being true and more and more deeply and profoundly true than anything else we might have called true in our experience. I'd like to read you some words from Black Elk, who was a, a holy man of the Ogalas Sioux, a Native American people. And he speaks of this uh, profound spiritual experience he had. He said, And then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and around about beneath me was the whole hoop of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw that the sacred hoop of my people was one of many hoops that made that one circle, wide as daylight and as starlight. And in the centre grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. There's something about seeing, recognizing, intuitively sensing or opening to the resonance of that unity, that wholeness, that indivisibility that speaks to us, that speaks to us directly of a sense of wholeness, which is the literal, what that literal sense is. But in that wholeness, there's also a sense of a healing. And healing comes from the same word. They have the same root, a sense of a healing of the, the woundedness of that separation, that, that deepest wound in the human heart is the sense of separateness. And the wound is painful because it ultimately isn't true. And that heals in that sense of recognizing wholeness. But not only is there healing, for again, from the same root, holiness, from the same root as whole and whole, and healed is holiness, that sense of the spiritual, the divine, the the dimension or the truth or the revelation of life in which something other than just the world is recognized. And yet it's not anything other than the world because it's nothing apart from the world. Nothing apart from all of this that we're right in the middle of right now.
to sense, to know this, to be knowing we are nothing, to be everything, to see this, is to naturally and organically discover the the fountain, we could say, the, the stream and the flow of compassion within our being, the sense of caring that is within our hearts naturally, that we all know and recognize. There is this capacity for caring in human beings and in life itself and all its expressions that becomes constrained and limited by our limited identifications with ourself or our circle of care, our circle of interest that we call me and mine. And when that drops away, when that is no longer given such authority, then that natural caring, that innate, intrinsic, unstoppable energy that we could call love, we could call compassion, that is as much the truth of the nature of what we are as that, that awakened realization of of the nature of life. This kindness, this caring, this tenderness is as much the nature of the awakened mind as its bright luminosity. This quite naturally finds its expression in life, in touching all things in different ways at different times. A sense of compassion when we're not separate, we feel with. Compassions to feel with or literally to suffer with, but to feel with life. Because we're not apart from it, of course we feel with it. Just as we feel deeply for anything or anyone we care for. When we see that we are all of it, how can we not? It's not something one does. It's not because it's a good idea or because it sounds like you know a wise or compassionate practice. It's simply the nature of what happens. That sense of caring, of reaching out, of moving forward with a sense of supporting, serving and contributing to the well-being, the happiness, the release from suffering of life, of living beings, of others, of ourselves. And making no distinction between others and ourselves because ultimately there isn't. So including, of course, caring for ourselves but equally caring for others according to what's possible, according to what we can do. And what's possible for us is remarkable as human beings. Remarkable. And there are so many stories that we can encounter and maybe within our own lives of, of immense kindness, natural, organic unthinking in a way kindness there's a story I came across some time ago that I find still remarkably touching of a of a, of a family I think in America in, where the, uh, the young daughter aged about 6 or 7 I think had a very rare form of blood disease that um, there was uh, that uh, I think she was very, very ill with it. It was uh, critical. And, this, and she had also a very, very rare blood type and she needed a transfusion or she wasn't going to live much longer. And uh, the only person they found, they could find with the same blood type was her younger brother who was about four and a half or five. And they realised that they could take a transfusion from this little boy 
to save his sister. But they didn't feel they could just take it from him without asking him because it's, you know, it's his, his body, his blood. And so they explained it to him. They said to the little boy, they said, your sister's really sick. She's dying. And uh, we need some of your blood. If you give some of her blood, of your blood to her, she, she, could, she might be able to live. Would you, would you be willing to do that? And apparently the little boy suddenly looked very serious. And he said, he probably didn't say it quite like this, but it's sort of like, I need to think about this. He, he probably just didn't answer straight away. And just took a little while. And then he, after a little time, he came back and said, yes, okay. So they took him to the hospital where his sister was, and they put him on the next bed, and they started, you know, put, put an IV line in and started taking out the blood. And uh, he was watching and watching, and his eyes were really quite large, and his face was really pale. And they took quite a substantial amount for a, a, for a small boy. They took quite a bit of blood out of him um, and were giving it to his sister, and they were all just so happy that his sister was going to you know, hopefully be able to survive this transfusion. And then the little boy, he, he, he sort of indicated he wanted to speak, and his parents came over and they said, your, your sister's looking really well now, thank you. And he said, I'm, I'm pleased, but can you tell me? How long now before I die? And it's amazing. I mean, I've told the story many times and it still touches me profoundly. A little child could mistakenly, but knowingly choose to, to give his blood, thinking it would cost him his life to save his sister. It's so beautiful. Not on the basis of a many years of intensive meditation practice, or spiritual teaching, but just something about the nature of love and the greatness of the human heart. And, uh, you know, this is possible for us as human beings to live in that spirit of willingness to share when we understand something of our profound connection. And in this, there are many ways and expressions to serve and to contribute to life, our life and the life of others. And equally as freedom is the mark of deepening understanding, so too is that compassion, that natural sense of care that just by its very nature and without ourselves needing to make it happen flows into the world. Being nothing, you are everything. That is all. That is all. It's like that's all we need to understand and that is all. It's not something particularly special. It doesn't mean you're somehow different or better than anyone else for having understood it. It's just, oh, it's like that. Huh, yeah, of course. This profound transformative and wonderful practice is simply to discover the simple ordinariness of life as it is unbound, interconnected profoundly sensitive and yet remarkably untouched by it all
So let's sit together for a minute or so. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will realize that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And may we all, in our practice and in our lives, come to realize this. For the welfare of all beings, ourselves and others, may we realize this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.